0: Israeli government needs to be active to get the hostages back alive. Anger grows as more details emerge about how Israeli soldiers accidentally shot and killed three Israeli hostages. For Saturday, December 16th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. More than a million electric vehicles were sold in the U.S. this year, but demand is slowing and many manufacturers are lowering production goals. We'll examine the state of the shift to electric. We'll also hear about a new investigation into how New York and other states credential doctors. And we'll look at the value of the chosen family at the holidays.
1: Take stock of the people who are around you, people who make you feel safe.
0: Plus, we'll hear from one of the finalists of the first-ever competition to be crowned HBCU
2: Band of the Year. You can't say Jackson State University without mentioning the sonic boom of the South. First, the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The top two U.S. military leaders are traveling to Israel to advise the Israeli government on how to transition from a major combat operation against Hamas in Gaza to a more precise and limited campaign. This after the sustained intensity of the campaign led President Biden to warn Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that Israel is losing international support because of its, quote, indiscriminate bombing. Meanwhile, the humanitarian situation in Gaza is getting worse. And Piers Kat Lonsdorfer reports there's been a prolonged communications blackout in Gaza for almost two days, making it hard for aid groups to get information. But from what we know, humanitarian conditions in Gaza are dire right now. Disease is spreading. People are living in overcrowded apartments with little access to medical aid or necessities. And, you know, the World Food Program just put out a report recently saying that half of the households there are facing severe hunger. And Pierce Kat Lonsdorff reporting. Both Ukraine and Russia have reported dozens of drone attacks over the past day. And Pierce Joanna Kikises says tensions are high after the EU failed to approve more aid to Ukraine.
4: Ukraine's air defense says it downed all but one of the 31 drones launched across the country by Russian forces. Meanwhile, Russia says it destroyed a total of 53 Ukrainian drones. Most were in Russian-occupied Ukrainian territory, but at least six were shot down over Russia's Kursk region, which borders Ukraine. Ukraine says it will lose this war without continued support from the U.S. and the EU, and that support is now in limbo. At an EU summit on Friday, the pro-Kremlin leader of Hungary vetoed the equivalent of more than $54 billion in aid to Ukraine. Meanwhile, in the U.S., congressional Republicans are holding up more than $61 billion in aid. Joanna Kisses, NPR News, Kiev.
3: A record jump in homelessness over the last year was driven by people who lost housing for the first time. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports a key factor was skyrocketing rent.
4: During the pandemic, federal aid kept many people from being evicted, but that ran out last year just as inflation spiked and median rent hit a record high. Jeff Olivet heads the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness.
5: We simply don't have enough homes that people can afford. And when you combine rapidly rising rent, you get this vicious game of musical chairs.
4: Olivet says there's only one affordable place for every three renters who need it. More cities are opening up zoning to ease the housing shortage, and apartment construction is way up. The new count finds more than 650,000 people living in tents, cars, or shelters. A quarter of them are seniors.
3: Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is
6: 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Roderick Jackson was remembered today as a family man who would do anything to support those around him, The National Grid worker was killed last week in a hit-and-run crash along with Waltham Police Officer Paul Tracy when a pickup truck crashed into a utility work site in Waltham. Jackson's funeral was held at St. Paul AME Church in Cambridge this morning. Services for Officer Tracy were held yesterday in Waltham. Commuter Rail Service is returning to Lynn on Monday after its station was closed in October due to concerns about the building's deteriorating condition. The MBTA has built a temporary platform for passengers and was able to do it nine months ahead of schedule. The interim platform is intended to minimize disruption to service while construction continues on a new station. Service will run between Lynn Station and Boston's North Station approximately every 30 minutes during the week and hourly on weekends. Well, a big crowd gathered at Faneuil Hall today to mark the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. The protest in which colonists threw British tea into the Boston Harbor is widely seen as the first step toward the American Revolution three years later. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll says it brought independent colonies together.
7: The Boston Tea Party is one of the most iconic moments in American history. Its actions and the British government's response to it, blocking our harbor, in adopting the Intolerable Acts and so much more—that's what served to the catalyst that led to the individual colonies coming together and uniting in support of each other.
6: More activities are planned for later tonight. We have a um, there will be a march from downtown crossing to Boston Harbor at around seven, followed by the tea dumping at Boston Harbor beginning at eight. Increasing clouds for tonight, low around 38. Tomorrow, showers later in the day, temperatures in the mid-50s. Right now, we have 46 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
4: WBUR supporters include Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day. As all
0: things considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. We begin this evening in Israel, where the country's military is providing more information about what is being called a grave error. Three Israeli hostages being held in Gaza were killed Friday by Israeli soldiers. According to the Israeli military, the soldiers mistakenly believed the three hostages, who were all men, posed a threat. And meanwhile, in Gaza, which remains under heavy bombardment by Israel... A nearly total communications blackout has been in place. Let's get the latest from NPR's Carrie Khan in Tel Aviv. Hey, Carrie. Hi. So let's start with the killing of these three hostages by Israeli soldiers. What have you learned about what exactly happened to them?
8: A military spokesman briefed reporters today on what the army knows of now. Uh, The official said the three hostages were shirtless and carrying a stick with a white flag on it when they were confronted by soldiers. He said the hostages were in an area of intense fighting, and they were perceived as a threat, that's what he said, and one soldier fired on all three Two were killed instantly and one ran into a building. There were cries in Hebrew for help from the building and the soldiers were ordered to cease fire. But in unclear circumstances, the third hostage was killed in what the army official told us was a clear violation of Israel's rules of engagement and the investigation continues.
0: I mean, there's something like 100 people still being held hostage. This has understandably been such an emotional topic in Israel. How has the public reacted to this news?
8: The reaction has been swift and they are angry. Yeah. A few hours ago, family members spoke to a large crowd gathered at this plaza here in Tel Aviv, and they're demanding that the government do more to bring the hostages home. Here is Ruby Chen. His 19-year-old son Itai was kidnapped and remains captive in Gaza.
9: The Israeli government needs to be active. They need to put an offer on the table including prisoners with blood on their hands, to get the hostages back alive.
8: The family members and their supporters have said they will now sit outside a government building here in Tel Aviv, where Israel's war cabinet meets, and they'll do that until the government begins negotiating for the hostages' release. I went to a march last night where angry protesters were venting their frustrations at the news that of the killings of the hostages. Uh, and I heard that again tonight. Everyone I talked to starts off saying they don't blame the soldiers who killed the hostages. There is a lot of sympathy for the soldiers. They blame the Israeli government for not doing enough to bring the hostages home.
0: Anger at the government, sympathy for the soldiers. Interesting. Um, meanwhile, what do you know about what exactly is happening in Gaza today?
8: There continues to be heavy air and ground fighting there. Casualties continue to mount with the Gaza Health Ministry reporting nearly 19,000 Palestinians now killed since the Israeli campaign began. Uh, In the past two days, though, there has been a major communications blackout in Gaza. We had not heard from NPR's producer, Anas Baba, there for more than 36 hours. We finally heard from him last night. He is in Rafah in the south, where Israel has told Gazans to go for their safety. And he reported to us seeing airstrikes there and sent us this voice memo from a morgue in the where he witnessed a dozen dead bodies.
7: Among those 12 dead bodies that I'm seeing in front of me, there is two children, the families, the relatives, all of them gathered in the morgue. And at the moment, they're saying the farewell and praying
10: for them.
8: Israel's military reports that at least 116 of its soldiers have died in the ground offensive, and it launched that after Hamas invaded southern Israel on October 7th and killed about 1,200 people and took about 240 hostages.
0: And Pierre's Kerry Khan in Tel Aviv, thank you so much.
8: You're welcome.
9: This is a persecution. Felony violations for national security
5: laws. We need one more indictment. Criminal
3: conspiracy.
5: To close out this election. He
3: actually just stormed out of the
4: courtroom.
9: Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law.
0: It's time for Trump's Trials, our weekly take on the multiple cases former President Donald Trump is facing. Today we're focusing on the January 6th federal election interference case, one of the two cases brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith. This week Smith filed a request to the US Supreme Court asking them to answer this key question. Can presidents be criminally prosecuted for crimes they're alleged to have committed while in office? This question is essential because if the Supreme Court decides Trump does have criminal immunity, then that really undercut Smith's entire case. Once again, we are here with NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Thanks for being here. Hey, Scott, great to be here as always. And we're also joined by Harry Litman, a former US attorney and deputy assistant attorney general. These days, he's a law professor. Welcome, Harry. Thanks, good to be here. So, Domenico, let's start with you. Can you briefly explain what exactly presidential immunity is? why the president has it, what we're talking about here. How long do we have? I mean, it's like,
9: (laughs) (laughs) okay, well, I'll keep it short then. The fact is, it's not really 100% clear that it even exists, right? I mean, like the Supreme Court has had sort of uh, differing opinions on this. Uh, There's some interpretation within parts of the Constitution, but the Constitution doesn't make immunity something that's clear. There's sort of you know, guidelines within the Justice Department that have cropped up to say that they won't pursue a president, essentially, while they're president. Right. This we spent case, a lot of time talking about that uh, the first couple of years. Right. With the Mueller investigation and everything. But now, what this really comes down to is, you know, whether or not Trump was acting as a candidate or whether or not he was acting as president.
0: And Harry, I want to ask you about Smith's decision to appeal directly to the Supreme Court in a moment. But first. Is there any key thing to think about on the issue at question, presidential immunity, uh, what's been written before, what's been ruled before, or what we've seen in the rulings so far from Chutkin and others?
11: Yeah. So first of all, I think uh, Domenico is a secret lawyer. Um, He he basically (laughs) pinpoints that there is nothing said in the Constitution, but the Supreme Court has basically decided, look, there are certain instances that would so impair the operation of the executive branch, for instance, I'm sure they would say, being in jail and trying to run the government, that we discern immunity. So immunity is just a kind of a policy call that they make to further the relations between, uh, you know, and the separation of powers among the branches. To Smith's uh, move, I think it was really a masterstroke and one of those moves that, like, look brilliant in retrospect but nobody thought of because there's two things happening right there's the immunity issue itself which probably is the big one that this is going to go to the Supreme Court. And then there's the ticking clock. And so uh, normally when you're ahead in the game, you let the other person, you know, plod through, but there is this rare device where you can jump the line and take it right to the Supreme Court. And he was thinking, I think if, uh, you know, it it may come to the, if anyway, and if we lose, we're, we're toast in any event. So let's try to tee this up because it's for the one trial that has the best chance of going forward and finishing before November 2024.
0: On this immunity question, have we gotten a sense yet what the court has made of this request and what sort of timeline we're thinking about from a court ruling?
11: We have in terms of the um, timeline, Scott. So what we know is they hopped to when the DOJ asked them and made uh, Trump submit a response which would normally be 30 45 day affair you can get an extension by wednesday so they gave them nine days and we think they're going to have this on this super fast track the best precedent for it is us versus nixon so we know that they're going to move very quickly in deciding whether to take up the issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, No hints further than that, but that's a pretty uh, big one. Just a quick note on on the timing. Chutkin earlier this week said, I don't have jurisdiction anymore, and so I'm letting this go for now. The DOJ said, you can't set a trial, sure, but you could still keep going with the discovery. And she said no. So that means that every day now that we have until they decide immunity is basically one for one a day that the trial is being pushed back. So we're, we really are looking, even in the best case, at a 30, 60 day delay. Okay. And Domenico,
0: that's where the intersection with the political world is really important here. This trial was set to start March 4th. Trump is far and away the leading candidate in the Republican field. Walk us through how quickly he could sew up the Republican nomination next year.
9: Well, March 5th is the next day, and that's Super Tuesday, and the 36% of all of the delegates will be allocated on that day. By the end of March, you'll have 70% of the delegates already allocated in the Republican primary. So, you know, instead of almost looking at this as a convergence of the political and legal calendars, I'm starting to see a divergence in the two, because as these cases sort of get pushed further and further down the line, you're going to have a situation where the Republican nominee is essentially going to be sewn up up sometime in the early spring, and you're going to have the trials really just starting to start up, potentially, even if we're thinking about this case in Georgia in August, right in the middle of uh, the heat of a presidential general election.
0: Harry, any sense that the court's ultimate ruling on this immunity question uh, could affect the other three criminal cases we're talking about, the uh, the classified documents and obstruction in Mar-a-Lago, the Georgia election interference case, or the New York campaign finance case?
11: What they're going to be asked to rule is a president when she or he is president has immunity. But former presidents, uh, not yet presidents, they don't have immunity. So the New York conduct, recall that's in the heat of the campaign with Stormy Daniels. The Mar-a-Lago is after he's out when he no longer has entitlement. The Georgia case is down the middle. He is president. There's a little wrinkle in that it's a state case, not a federal case. But if the Supreme Court were to find immunity for a president uh, in a situation, I think it would necessarily have to hold as against a state as well that's trying to indict him all right
0: harry litman a former u.s attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a law professor thanks so much for joining us my pleasure thanks for having me Domenico montanaro thanks as always to you as always thank you you're listening to all things considered from npr news
5: we're funded by you our listeners and by lake champlain chocolates Celebrating the season with organic fair-trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at LakeChamplainChocolates.com. And Jose Mateo Ballet Theater. Rediscover the magic of the Nutcracker at the Strand in Dorchester, now through the 24th. Tickets from $25. Ballettheater.org.
6: It's 518, coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. Stories about unlikely Christmas wishes, letters from the Grinch, and a husband by Hanukkah. Stay with us. It's a special holiday episode from The Moth on the WBUR app.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England. Recognizing the Lenny Zakim Fund. Founded in 1995 by civil rights leader Lenny Zakim, the fund has granted over $12 million to nearly 400 grassroots organizations committed to advancing social, economic, and racial justice throughout Massachusetts thelenizakamfund.org. I'm
3: Janine Herbst with these headlines. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the mistaken killing of three Israeli hostages in Gaza by Israeli soldiers broke his heart. But he says he wouldn't change the military's approach. Military officials also say the hostages who were shot and killed had been waving a white flag and were shirtless. The Biden administration is seeking emergency aid for both Israel and Ukraine, but it's being blocked by congressional Republicans who want beefed-up security at the U.S. border included in any bill. And the U.S. and South Korea issued a joint statement today warning North Korea against a nuclear attack, saying it would be met with a swift, overwhelming, and decisive response that would end the Kim Jong-un regime. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation.
0: From NPR news, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. The Ford F-150 Lightning pickup had an unconventional test driver back in 2021. It was a day before the electric vehicle's official release. And to keep details under wraps until then, the big pickup truck was actually cloaked in camouflage. A man wearing aviator sunglasses climbed behind the wheel and took off.
9: Mr. President! This sucker's quick. How does it How's it be? drive?
0: President Biden liked the ride.
11: Now, I don't know anybody a stopwatch, but I think if we're going at zero to 60 in about 4.3,
10: so <laughs> 4.4? 4. Right. 4.5.
0: Early on in his presidency, Biden was making it clear just how much he was betting on electric vehicles.
10: All right, our best test driver ever.
0: The longtime car guy, remember those fake Onion articles about Biden working on old hot rods back when he was vice president? Well, he had set big goals of boosting American manufacturing and slashing the country's greenhouse gas footprint. Shifting the country to electric vehicles would do both. So to show just how serious he was about all of it, Biden took the F-150 for a spin himself after touring Ford's Rogue Electric Vehicle Center in Dearborn, Michigan.
10: My name is
0: Joe Biden and I'm a car guy. Delivering remarks, Biden said that electric was the future of the auto industry. But there was no turning back. The real question is whether we'll lead
13: or we'll fall behind in the race to the future.
0: His administration set the ambitious goal of having half of all new vehicle sales be electric by 2030. And Biden accelerated that goal earlier this year when the White House proposed strict new automobile pollution limits that could require as many as two-thirds of new vehicles sold in the U.S. to be electric by 2032. But even as more than a million EVs were sold in the U.S. this year, there have been a few speed bumps in recent months. Standardizing the plug types, the charging speeds, and the payment systems at public charging stations has taken time. And so has the physical construction of a national charging network that's partially funded by Biden's major infrastructure law. In fact, the first Biden-funded charging station only opened this month in Ohio, more than two years after the president test drove that Ford F-150. Speaking of Ford, it has become one of several automakers who have scaled back production of electric models, citing slowing demand. The model in question for Ford was the F-150 Lightning the very same model that Biden used to kickstart public enthusiasm for EVs. The Biden administration says when it comes to EVs, the United States is in the race of the future. But now, with the sale of electric vehicles seeming to slow, is the country at risk of falling behind? To understand the state of EVs right now, I called up someone who's been keeping a close eye on this. Keith Barry senior writer with Consumer Reports. Hey, Keith. Hey, Scott, how are you? I'm, I'm good, and I just want to start by ticking through some of the recent headlines of the past few weeks. On one hand, stuff like a million EVs sold in the US this year. That's the first time we've crossed that mark. The first Biden-funded Charger opens up. But then on the other side of the ledger, Ford scaling back productions on one of the most iconic of the new electric vehicles. Several
14: other manufacturers have done the same in recent months. What would you say the state of things is? I would say the state of things remains uh, what what it has been for a while now is it's in flux this is a new market, this is a new category, mm-hmm. and the general public is just kind of dipping that toe in the water. We're finding a lot of folks are, are heading to Consumer Reports and, and to our articles about EVs are, are just, you know, kind of off the charts in terms of interest. Uh, and, and at the same time, some of the other articles that people are looking at are, you know, vehicles under $25,000. So we're in this weird place in the market as well where people might be interested in these but right now they might not be feeling comfortable enough to afford one you look at the comments
0: that that auto executives have made in these in these quarterly calls or announcements about scaling back manufacturing or sales goals and a lot of them are saying that interest just seems to be waning a little more than we thought right now are you seeing that and is there a clear reason why interest is waning i mean is is it what you just said right there evs are just still more expensive and people can't get over that hurdle
14: yeah, I, I mean I I think we had some delays in getting some product out from from GM that people were a little bit excited about. You know, some of these cars were a little bit delayed, and it's happening now. You know, we just we just got in a Chevy Blazer EV and a and a Kia EV nine for our test program. And the cool thing about those is that they're in this sort of SUV category that a lot of people want to purchase and they're not a hundred thousand dollars. They're sort of more affordable, but at the same time, they are a lot more expensive than some gas powered cars. There are a lot of great hybrids out there. So people are thinking, you know, maybe maybe this time around, uh, you know, interest rates are high. It costs a lot to buy a vehicle. Maybe I'll buy a two year old hybrid rather than getting that brand new EV. Mm -hmm. There aren't those used cars in the market either how would you assess the
0: state of of public chargers right now are chargers spread out to a point where you can get in a car go for a drive uh, a couple states over and not end up on the side of the road at the moment
14: yeah i i mean the majority of people who who drive EVs, the more majority of people who drive in general, are driving within the range of a current EV on a daily basis. So I, I think the way that I think of it and the way that we think of it at CR is that sort of this range anxiety from the early days of EVs, where, you know, an EV would have like an 80-mile range or a 100-mile range, and if it were snowing out or if you got stuck in traffic, you might not make it home from work, that's gone. Mm-hmm. Cars are in the 200, mid-200 200 range. You can get where you need to go on a daily basis but that's been replaced that range anxiety has been replaced by charging anxiety you know there are more chargers than there ever were and we're going to be getting more of them but as of right now if you're outside of kind of the coasts in california there are fewer chargers as well so i think people are also seeing that and thinking maybe i'll wait a little bit until those chargers are, are fully built out so in your
0: expert consumer reports opinion generally speaking, if, if you're if you're talking to somebody who's who's interested, who really wants to go electric but is on the fence right now, is your general recommendation now is the moment or if you can hold off a little bit, wait for things to settle out a little bit
14: more in the next year or so. It really depends on how you're going to use it. If you live somewhere where you can charge, where energy costs are low, you can afford it. There are some great lease deals on EVs because the tax credit does uh, count for for leased EVs, even if it doesn't count for cars that aren't leased, so you can get a, a very good deal there. Yeah, try it, jump in, especially if you have, a, you know, another vehicle that you can use for the longest road trips. But if you live somewhere, if you're in California, of course, go out and buy, <laughs> go out and buy an EV if you have a place that you can charge. Otherwise, there's some great hybrids out there. There are some plug-in hybrids that that meet the needs for some people as well. So there are ways that you can get towards electrification without just fully jumping in. There's still a big distance between, you know, a vehicle that's just a, a gas guzzler and a car that is fully, fully electric. That's Keith
0: Barry, senior writer with Consumer Reports. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. As we noted earlier, all of this is a big priority for President Biden. Two of the biggest laws he signed will spend billions of dollars on growing the EV market and the infrastructure needed to charge the cars. Biden's point person on all of this is former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu, who serves as Biden's infrastructure coordinator. We called him up too. Let's start with this. How would you describe 2023 for electric vehicles?
15: Well, I think we're all on go. I don't think there's any turning back. Uh, The days of the combustion engine, I think are numbered every major auto manufacturer uh, is moving in that direction. Um, as you know, through the bipartisan infrastructure law, the president put a significant amount of money into making sure that the federal government's doing its part, $7.5 billion dollars, uh, for EV charging, and $5 billion has gone to the backbone of high-speed charges on every 50 miles um, on on America's major roadways. So you see, the, you see the private sector, all the auto manufacturers are moving in this direction, You know, the folks that are buying these things are moving in that direction. So now it's just a matter of time.
0: You say there's no going back and there are some big milestones this year, like passing a million sales for the first time. But at the same time, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of reports, like one from a few days ago, of Ford downgrading its production estimates for the coming years for the F-150, which got a lot of attention on EVs. A lot of these companies are saying, wait a second, we might not need as many as we thought we needed. Is that something that worries you?
15: no it's it's not unexpected i mean anytime you're trying a major transformation you're going to have you know go forward a couple steps move back a little bit but the direction is really really clear and and it's certain as more automakers enter the ev space and more ev models proliferate i mean it's only natural that you're going to see these trend shifts um that's always been the case in the auto market it's actually a sign of healthy competition but listen the data is really clear here you know ev sales are continuing to increase overall pretty much a 50 percent increase year on year. Also, the data reflects that businesses have announced more than $140 billion in investments in EVs and batteries. So uh, it's like anything else. I mean, as we rebuild the country with infrastructure, um, this is the first time we're doing this. The expectation is we'll have stops and starts, but I think all the indications are pretty good.
0: A lot of the the surveys show that a lot of people who are interested say, you know, I want to wait till there's more chargers out there. I just want to be sure. Uh, you, you mentioned before that $7.5 billion uh, to build out the chargers. It's such a big part of the infrastructure law. What's the state of those investments? Where are things right now? I know the very first one funded with the law opened up in Ohio, but big picture, when can we start to see more and more of these on the roads?
15: Uh, actually, I mean, really, as we speak, remember, um, you know, one of the things that's understandable because we live in an instant gratification society is if you pass a bill, everybody thinks like that's the end of it. When in fact... It's really just the beginning of it. And, and if you're building infrastructure, that takes longer rather than shorter. One of the reasons why it takes some time is because planning is critically important. We wanna make sure that every state is following the guidelines to put these every 50 miles, because as you know, people mostly have range anxiety. So we're expecting some a lot of progress in 2023, 2024, and then eventually it's gonna sync up the sales and the EV charges will sync up. And you know, my prediction is in, in the in the not too distant future, in the next couple of years, people are gonna go, wow, this is actually working the way it was designed. There was no reason mm-hmm. to believe that we, we can't get there or that we won't get there in time.
0: When I talked to you at one point about this this summer, we talked about the fact that so far, the switch to electric vehicles had not become the type of culture war issue that a lot of people expected, given how much cars are you know, central part of American culture. And since then you've seen Donald Trump and other Republicans running for president and other Republicans out there kind of making electric vehicles more and more part of a political attack. And I'm wondering how worried you are on whether that could slow down the transition if it does become more
15: of a culture divide type thing. I am not worried at all because American people are really, really smart. I'll bet my life on this, that in the not too distant future, the electric pickup trucks are going to be crisscrossing this entire country. People that are are driving a Ford F-150, you know, or things like that, even in the most rural areas, these cars are fine, they're fast, they're more cost effective. I, I have no doubt about it. I'm sure there's no doubt about the fact that politicians that are out there running today who can't agree on what time of day it is will find any issue to drive a wedge between people. But you know what American citizens like? Things that are are fast, things that make their lives better, things that get them to and from. And when all these charging stations are open, here's another bet that I'll make you, that every one of these folks will be at the ribbon cutting.
0: So just to sum this up, the charging stations are being built. Construction's underway for new battery plants all across the US. Uh, Companies are building more electric vehicles. Well, we're at this point of kind of a question mark of the market right uh as companies are saying maybe not as fast as we thought we're still figuring this out what do you think the one or two or three biggest challenges are over the next few years to make sure that trend keeps going up
15: i don't well first of all i don't i don't completely disagree with the with, with your statement but i wouldn't color it that negative i think it's mm-hmm. not unexpected at all for there to be a little bit of a retrenchment i think the data is pretty clear heading in one direction. And so I I absolutely feel very confident that we're going to get there. You know, again, like anything else, when you start getting stuff done as opposed to talking about it, you're always going to run into trouble. But let me just say this. For all the headlines written in the last six months about how EV demand is is faltering, the data really doesn't support it. I mean, sales of passenger EVs are on pace to hit 14 million this year, which is up 36% from 2000. 22. And in the United States, where most of the concerns on demand have been raised, sales are growing even faster and they're going to be about 50 percent this year. So I think that I think the narrative here is critically important. It's not like we're kind of moving backwards. We're not moving as fast, as forward as we thought. My guess is that things are going to at some point in time, you know, meet up. It's just one of these things. It takes time and it takes work. That's White House infrastructure czar Mitch Landrieu.
0: to All Things Considered from NPR News. For some people, the holidays can be a painful reminder of family conflict or estrangement. But for Daniel Blevins, they're a reminder to spend more time with his chosen family, like his three chosen kids we met online.
1: They just saw me as a father figure and and an older gay man and somebody they had questions or they wanted to talk to
0: Blevins runs an online support group called Stand In Pride. It connects queer and trans people with stand-in parents for life events like weddings and graduations, and those relationships often last more than one day. Life Kit producer Margaret Serino talked to Blevins about expanding a chosen family.
7: For Blevins, chosen family is just family. He walked one of his chosen kids, his daughter Keisha, down the aisle at her wedding. And he says that cultivating this chosen family is crucial for many queer and trans people.
1: I think it's saving lives, too, to show these younger people that you can survive.
7: But finding and building those connections is not easy. If you want a richer family network in your life, Blevins has a few tips. The good news is that you probably already have some chosen family to begin with.
1: Take stock of the people who are around you, people who make you feel safe. Ask yourself these key questions. Who checks on you? Who's concerned about your well-being? Who's making sure that you're okay? Just having that connection with someone who instinctively knows when you're not okay, I think that's a good indicator that you're more than just friends.
7: Maybe you have a really close friend that you want to think of as family, but you're unsure if they can be that for you because they've already got family of their own. Blevin says those things don't have to be exclusive.
1: I know of a few instances where, you know, two best friends, one has their family, the other one doesn't. Their family adopts the other one and takes them in and just makes them part of the family.
7: Blevin says you can also challenge yourself to widen your network and find family outside of your pre-existing circle. Join a Facebook group like Stand in Pride if you're part of the queer or trans community. There's also a sibling group that's open to everyone. That one's called Stand In Family. And Blevins recommends another group called Free Mom Hugs.
1: A lot of those who come to the group looking for support don't ever post anything. They read the introduction posts of those who are there to offer support and they reach out to them. They just, you know, handle it privately. You can also check out in-person groups if you're
7: comfortable to find like-minded members. Maybe that means working in a community garden or volunteering at a local school or joining a hiking group. Or maybe you're looking for a deeper family connection in the long term, but right now you need help with
1: something specific. It just depends on where you live. There is a website called findhelp.org, and you can search by your zip code for resources in your area.
7: Findhelp.org is good for lots of different situations. Like, you have an upcoming surgery and you need someone to drive you, or you need career advice. You know, all of those more logistical needs that you might normally turn to a family member for. Regardless of how much family you have in your life, all of us stand to benefit from deeper and more plentiful chosen family connections.
1: If you think about a family dynamic, you know, if. If mom and dad both work, a lot of times you may have a grandparent or an aunt and uncle who can pick you up from school because you're sick or a family friend. So you don't just depend on mom and dad. It's a whole network of people. You know, they say it takes a village, and that's true.
7: For NPR News, I'm Margaret Serino.
0: This is NPR News.
4: Now is the time to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It's
6: 539. Coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR, we'll have stories about unlikely Christmas wishes. Stay with us on the WBUR app. Increasing clouds tonight, low around 38. Tomorrow, showers in the afternoon, mid-50s.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emmanuel Music, Britton, Woody, Bach, Sunday at 4, featuring Boston Children's Chorus and Cambridge Common Voices. More at emmanuelmusic.org. And Johnson & Wales, committed to going beyond the classroom by helping students develop networks and experience in fields like healthcare, business, and cybersecurity. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center
3: stage. The I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. A federal appeals court in Louisiana rejected a request by Republican state officials for a review of a recent ruling about the state's congressional election map. It's the latest step in a long-running fight over the collective voting strength of the state's black voters. The royal court in Kuwait says that Samir died today. Sheikh Nawaf al Ahmad al-Sabah was 86. The cause of death wasn't disclosed. His 83-year-old half-brother succeeds him. And 99% of Teamsters working for Anheuser-Busch across the country have voted to authorize a strike. If the company fails to come to terms on a new contract, the union wants better pay and benefits. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR this is NPR
0: from NPR news this is all things considered I'm Scott Detrow in 2016 Amy Lam was a 34 year old journalism student in New York City she'd recently moved there from Hong Kong and was expecting her second child but hours after giving birth Amy died at Harlem Hospital her tragic story is the starting point of a new investigative podcast series from member station WNYC called Imminent Danger, One Doctor and a Trail of Injured Women. The podcast looks at the troubling medical career of an OBGYN named Thomas J. Byrne and what it tells us about how doctors are vetted in the United States. The host of that series is WNYC's investigative editor, Christopher Worth. He joins us now. Hey, Christopher. Hey, Scott. So tell us more about how Amy died and how this doctor, Thomas Byrne, treated her on the night that she did die.
13: Yeah, so Amy gave birth at home. She hadn't planned to do that, but that's how it ended up. She had given birth to a healthy baby boy, but her husband had called an ambulance uh, to get some help cutting the umbilical cord. And when EMS arrived, they realized that the placenta had not come out. And so they had transported her to Harlem Hospital And what we know from medical records is that while she was there, she had started to lose a lot of blood. And you know I wanna stress there were a number of doctors who treated her there to try to stop that bleeding over the course of many hours that night. And one of them was a doctor who is the subject of this series, as you say, Dr. Thomas Byrne. Mm -hmm. He performed a hysterectomy on Amy just hours after she'd given birth. And he, he was named in a lawsuit along with several of those other doctors brought by Amy's family, claiming that her death was wrongful. In that case, eventually settled for $3 million. And this is
0: where the series broadens out, because your team found that it was pretty remarkable that Byrne was practicing there to begin with, right? Because many years before, he had been stripped of his medical license in New York State in a pretty public way.
13: Yeah. So the New York Health Department had investigated Byrne while he was practicing in upstate New York in the 1990s. It had found five cases over the span of just a couple of years in which his care as an OBGYN had, as the state said, quote, caused or contributed to bad outcomes. Um, three of those babies died. Two were severely injured. Um, the state labeled Byrne a, an imminent danger to the public initially and then finally revoked his medical license. But what we know is that he was able to keep practicing in other states. He went to New Mexico, and then he went to Oklahoma, and then he ultimately got that New York license back decades later, despite a track record of malpractice lawsuits and disciplinary measures taken against him in those other states. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what we set out to answer here is how and why he was able to continue practicing. As part of that, your team talked to some of the
0: families who, who lost babies. What did you learn?
13: Yeah, the reporter on this series, Karen Shikurgy, contacted and spoke with many of the families that were involved in the state's initial investigation. Um, many of them were angry to find out that Byrne had um, gotten his license back in New York. She also spoke with a nurse who had worked with Dr. Byrne at the time um, that those cases happened. Her name is Michelle Durham. I just want to play you a clip from the second episode in the series. Okay, um, You'll first hear our reporter, Karen, and then Michelle.
12: Were you there in the room when all of
16: this was yes. unfolding? Yes. Michelle Durham was a labor and delivery nurse at the time. What was it What was it like in there? From what I would call, I, I had an impending feeling of, <laughs> I, I don't want to sound dramatic, but doom. Like, this is not going the way it should. Her temperature started to creep up. She developed fetal tachycardia and she wasn't showing the cervical change that she should have and I, I you know, I, I think that when you do something in medicine long enough, you, you develop like a sixth sense. And there are certain cases and bad outcomes specifically, you just don't forget.
6: Can you
12: describe Dr. Byrne? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in what your impressions of him were.
16: I would say compared to the many physicians I had worked with, um, <laughs> I don't know how to say this, you know, he was kind of a cowboy. He would it, it just be m- much more aggressive in the care of a patient. And I think it made a lot of people uncomfortable. Michelle also testified as a witness in the investigation into Dr. Byrne. So, prior to the case in question, he already sort of had an established reputation. I mean, because patient E, whose case I was involved in, was not the first bad outcome. I mean, there had been many previous bad outcomes.
0: That's part of a WNYC podcast called Imminent Danger, One Doctor and a Trail of Injured Women. I'm speaking to the podcast host, investigative editor Christopher Wirth. And Christopher, this series focuses on one doctor, but it also gets into much bigger systemic issues here about how Mm -hmm. doctors are vetted and licensed in this country.
13: Yeah, it does. You know, one of the things we looked at is the work that state medical boards do to examine a doctor's track record. Before granting doctors a license, um, you know medical boards really are the first line of defense when it comes to patient safety. But because each state handles its own licensing, a doctor can lose their license in one state and then go on to practice in another. And, and what we found in in the public records that Karen, the reporter, was able to obtain, is that one. New Mexico did know the details of why Byrne had lost his license in New York before it gave him a license just a year after he would lost it in New York. And two, in talking with some of the people who run medical boards, it's clear that they really do rely a great degree on a trust system. You know, that is to say that they hope that doctors are honest on their applications when they apply for a medical license. And I just wanna play you another clip from one of those conversations. Um, This is Lyle Kelsey. He's the executive director of the Oklahoma State Medical Board. He started in that position just before the board granted Burn a medical license there.
10: We license almost 30,000 licensees in, in 14 different professions. And you uh, you know, somewhere you have to hope that they're all being honest when they renew their license and answer questions. Do you,
1: do you think that hope is, is enough when it comes to a profession of people who are taking care of patients?
16: Does that, does that work out okay?
10: Well, I, I, I'm i not so sure what your question is. Uh, uh, of course, you, you recognize that it's a learned profession, uh, highly educated people, and you would presume by that that the, these people would be honest and forthright in answering questions, and occasionally we may find out that somebody has lied on their application, and, and that becomes then a fraudulent application. But, I don't
13: think there's anything wrong with hope. So, Scott, you hear him saying there's, there isn't anything wrong with hope. But when we compared public records with how Byrne answered questions on, on several of his applications in several states, including Oklahoma, mm-hmm. we found many instances where Byrne had made false statements and misrepresented the circumstances as to why New York had revoked his license. Yeah.
0: Were you able to talk directly to Byrne about all of this?
13: Yeah, we tried many times to reach Dr. Byrne. We sent him questions by email. Uh, We tried to talk to him by phone. There were two instances in which we actually did reach him, but he hung up. And we also sent uh, journalists to his places of work in the Bronx and in Amarillo, Texas. In Texas, uh, a journalist showed up, but Byrne refused to, to speak to that person.
0: Uh, whether we want to admit it or not, there's a point in almost everybody's life where you put your life in the hands of a doctor, and you expect him or her to be an expert at what they're doing, and that's that's not always the case, as we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. What was your big takeaway from this investigation?
13: Yeah, I think I'll, I'll quote from you know one of the patient safety experts that we spoke with in this series, and as a that healthcare, you know, is an industry just like any other, and sometimes decisions are made for reasons other than patient safety. You know, a number of the people who we spoke with described the economic pressures that might lead a medical board to grant a license to a doctor with a concerning track record or a hospital to hire that person. You know, there are many hospitals in this country, whether they're in rural parts of New Mexico or in urban areas in New York City serving low-income communities, that struggle to recruit any kinds of specialists, right? Uh, The former head of nursing at a rural hospital where Byrne worked in Oklahoma told us that she couldn't recall there being an OBGYN at the hospital or in this area before Byrne was hired. So there's an incentive to make that hire and perhaps overlook some of the concerning things. And it can be very difficult for patients to find that information out on their own. Yeah.
0: That's WNYC's investigative editor, Christopher Worth. Christopher, thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. Imminent Danger was produced in partnership with the Pulitzer Center. You can listen to the whole series on the NYC Now podcast. Today was college football's Celebration Bowl, the de facto national championship for historically black colleges and universities. There were some other black national championships decided last night as well. the eve of the football game, Atlanta hosted the inaugural HBCU Band of the Year competition, featuring four of the country's top marching bands. One of the finalists was Jackson State University's Sonic Boom of the South, led by band director Roderick Little, who joins us today from the bus on the tail end of the drive back to campus from Atlanta. Dr. Little, welcome to All Things Considered.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on.
0: I, I, I've got to start by letting the audience know that, that you all did not win Band of the Year in your division for bigger schools. You were edged out by North Carolina A&T, and the winner wasn't announced until this afternoon. You all just found out. How are you all feeling?
2: Um, Overall, we're, we're doing good. Um, you know... Of course, we would have liked to come out on the winning side, but, you know, one thing that we discussed to our students at length is that, you know, we don't need anybody or polls or adjudicators to validate what we do in our program. And so um, as long as we are better than what the previous sonic booms were in the past, which is our, our dial to basically gauge how we're doing as a program, then we're fine. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so right now we're taking it in stride, you know, headed back to Jackson as we look forward to a great holiday break, much needed break.
0: The commentators of today's game were talking about this during the broadcast. They thought you would all win. They said your sound and swagger were huge. How did it feel to your band to be out under the bright lights in this competition?
2: Well, um, you know, actually being out, you know, in the bright lights is nothing new to us. Um, You know, we just had, uh, you know, a nationally known coach by the name of Deion Sanders. You may know him. Heard of that Um, guy. he brought a lot of... Yeah, he brought a lot of prestige to the um the university and, and even prior to that, you know, Jackie State has always had a story legacy of illustrious alumni and fan base. And so, um, the Sunny Boom of the South, we're we're pretty much always watched by at least thirty to forty thousand people every weekend. Um, but however, you know, being able to be on a platform like ESPN was was a good look for us. So mm-hmm. it was an honor to shut a stage with three other great band programs. Tell us about the show that you played
0: and the and the choreography and what, what the general plan was last night.
2: The idea that we came up with was featuring the music of Usher. Um, Usher is very, well, he, he's been popular for, you know, a number of decades now. But, you know, especially now he has a residency... In Las Vegas, and, um, you know, he's going to be doing the Super Bowl in February, so we thought that it'll just be an outstanding time to pay homage to this large catalog of music. And at the same time, um, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were cutting edge on the on the drill content that we did as well. So we just kind of morphed both of those ideas together. I need to say, you're
0: talking about all the things you've done this year. He did a big tiny desk concert here at NPR as well, but,
2: um, yes, yes, so huge.
0: I think, um, Bigger than the Super Bowl. I think some people listening might not just fully grasp how big of a deal marching bands are at a lot of HBCUs. Can you tell us about the depth of the tradition at your school? Just how big it is? You you said yourself right there, playing for thirty and 40,000 people every week
2: already. Band programs and HBCUs, they have a hand-and-glove correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the cultural and historical background is systemic in a way that you really can't, you know, have a reputable HBCU without having a band program of some sort. You know, of course, we have the other great HBCUs that don't necessarily have band programs, but I feel as though, well, actually, I know that band programs that just adds to the prestige uh, the public relations of an institution. Um, so, with that being said, you know you can't say Jackson State University without mentioning the Sonic Boom of the South. So it it's, it basically just kind of goes hand in hand. It's a marriage. This was the first time
0: that that ESPN organized this competition. You've now been through it. Any any advice on on how you'd like to see this event build over the years? Having gone through it just now.
2: Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I've, I've been in conversations with the organizers of the event um, really ever since June. And um, there was another fellow, one of my colleagues, that was there as we, you know, were, were in general discussion about what this thing's going to look like. And, you know, obviously, by being the first year, there's a lot of things to improve. And so, you know, I'm going to be getting back with the facilitators of the event to, you know, just kinda of improve some of those things that we'll like to see as band directors overall. Um so but, you know, again, by being the inaugural event, you know, I think overall things went well. Uh, but of course everything can stand to have improvements and I plan on sharing my sentiments with the necessary parties involved.
0: I've got to ask is one of those uh, suggested improvements on your end not waiting the not making the bands wait nearly a full day before they <laughs> find out who won?
2: <laughs> Yeah, that that'll be great as well. And I think you know what they try to do because this this thing is connected with the Celebration Bowl as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what they try to do was you know try to create more viewership for the Celebration Bowl. You know, from the stand so from the standpoint of you know business acumen, I can understand that. But from the standpoint of bands, it was definitely weighed on pins and needles to figure out who has uh, who's going to be the winning band for that competition.
0: That's Dr. Roderick Little, director of Jackson State University's Sonic Boom of the South Marching Band. Thanks so much for talking to us.
2: Thank you.